Last week, our message was divided into three parts. Our leaders, our Lord, and our liberty. We were commanded to remember godly leadership and to follow the faith they teach, provided they also live a life commensurate with the scripture. We were reminded that Jesus, being God incarnate, never changes. He is immutable. Finally, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, what we believe about him should never change. For nearly 2,000 years now, Christians have recognized Jesus as God and worshipped him as divine. When strange doctrines have reared their ugly, wolfish heads, they often reveal themselves by trying to diminish, however minutely, the person or the nature of Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we hold fast to the pure truth of Scripture and the gospel of grace it so clearly proclaims. We're getting close to the end of Hebrews now. I'm not quite sure if it's going to be one more message after today or two. Um, It was difficult to decide where to divide this message up. I decided finally to go from verse 10 through verse 16. So let's read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10 through verse 16, and we'll talk about that some today. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Let's pray. Father in heaven, throughout this week, as you gave me the opportunity to read this scripture over and over again. I was moved by the incredible power of it. One of the most powerful passages that I've read in a long, long time. And I just ask that in the same way your spirit moved in my heart to see the beauty of your words to me, that it would move in the hearts of each person here to reveal the beauty of your truth to their hearts as well. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled today's message, Seeing Jesus as the Truth. And the reason I did that is I'm going to read a fairly lengthy excerpt from a book of that title because uh, it's such a powerful passage. I I couldn't, I was trying to narrow it down and, and take ideas from the passage to introduce to you, but I couldn't say it as well as the author of the book said it. So I finally just decided I'm just going to read that that excerpt to you. So I'll do that 
at some point today. Our first point, and the first point that the Scripture brings up, is that we need to be following the rejected Jesus. It's especially important that we remind ourselves of the context here in verse 10. This verse really continues the thought we touched on last week in verses 8 and 9. In summary, Jesus never changes. Therefore, don't be tossed around by strange doctrines, but firmly established by grace, not with earthly things, but with heavenly things. Verse 9 ends with an old covenant idea of attaching a special importance to the food consumed by the priesthood sacrificed to God in the tabernacle. And it is with this thought that we continue today with verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. It is fitting that here in the final chapter of Hebrews, the author uses another Old Testament example to teach us. He has been shining the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ on the Old Testament for 12 chapters now. And he commands our attention and the attention of the Jewish readers one final time using the same tools. Only followers of Jesus Christ have a right to partake at the altar of Christ. The writer to the Hebrews insists that as Christians, we do have an altar. And it is an altar that those who cling to the Levitical system or some religious system have no right to. It is impossible to come to the cross based on your merit. Verse 9 says that our assurance and our hope is a result of grace. God's unmerited favor toward us. We have done nothing to earn it. God has offered it to us. Let me set the scene for you briefly. Only Jews were allowed to partake of the sacrifices that were given at the altar in the tabernacle. And even at that, it was only a small portion of the Jews, the priesthood. Everybody else was excluded. If you would have been alive at that time, as a non-Jewish person, you too would have been excluded from partaking. It almost breaks my heart to even think about it. And even at that, there was one particular offering of which no one was allowed to partake. The offering on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The author wrote about the Day of Atonement before. The author of Hebrews talked about the Day of Atonement previously in chapters 9 and 10. You can go back and read that at your leisure later today. But he talked about the Day of Atonement extensively in those chapters. He carefully plotted out how Jesus is superior to the offerings of atonement that were offered during the time of the tabernacle. In fact, those Levitical sacrifices were mere shadows of the reality of ultimate atonement in Jesus Christ and his work for us on the cross. 
And as believers, our altar is the cross, the centerpiece of the Christian gospel. Such a powerful centerpiece, Paul even calls the entire gospel the message of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To find the Savior, we must go outside the camp. Verses 11 through 13 are loaded with meaning. These words, outside the camp or outside the gate, occur in each of these three verses, 11, 12, and 13. So I would like to attempt to draw out two important concepts from this phrase, outside the camp. And I'm sure I won't even then begin to do it justice and the justice that it deserves. Before we begin, I just want to take a couple of moments to show you what these Jewish believers would have understood culturally that it is more difficult for us as non-Jews to grasp. So there's a picture that'll come up, and it's just a drawing, it looks pretty dim, of what the Jewish camp would sort of have looked like. So you see in the center there the tabernacle and then the gate or the fence around the tabernacle. And then around that, there was a very careful, this looks a little bit chaotic, but there was a very careful organization of the of the tribes of Israel around the camp, around the tabernacle. And there was a place that was called outside the camp that you had to take things uh, that didn't belong inside the camp, things that were unclean. So you would take whatever it was, you would trot down these aisles, and you would go to this no man's land outside the camp. When the writer to the Hebrews used this phrase, outside the camp, the Jewish believers would have understand, understood immediately. This was something that was unclean, taken away so that it didn't have to be experienced by those that were inside the camp. Go ahead and turn the lights on. So what I'd like to do now then is read an excerpt from a book by Roy and Revel Hesion called we would see Jesus, one of the very first books I read as a new believer. Quote, What would the picture of outside the camp mean to the Hebrew Christians to whom the writer of Hebrews was writing? They would be taken back in imagination to the days when their nation was in the wilderness. They would visualize that great, orderly encampment with the sacred tabernacle in the center of it. Around the well-defined encampment, they would visualize a no-man's land, known to all as outside the camp. And that place would be associated in their minds with certain classes of people. Outside the camp was where the foreigners had to live, non-Jews. Those who were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of, of promise. Such were not permitted normally to live within the camp. That would have been where you would have had to live and I would have had to live if we would have been alive at that time. 
Outside the camp, too, were the lepers. Because of the contagious nature of that terrible disease, they were banished from the camp, uncared for, and excluded from all the delights open to others. It was also the dread place of execution for lawbreakers and criminals. According to the law of Moses, the death penalty was to be imposed by stoning and outside the camp was where that was to take place. In this passage, however, the writer tells us what is perhaps the most gruesome detail of that place. It was the place where the bodies of those beasts whose blood had been sprinkled in the holy place for sin were burned on the refuse heap. The body which had had symbolically placed upon it the sins of the offerer was burnt as so much sin-cursed refuge, utterly abhorrent to both God and man. In all, that region outside the camp was not a pleasant place. It was the place of foreigners, lepers, criminals, and sin-cursed refuse, a place to be avoided. Yet the scripture tells us that it was to the spiritual counterpart of that place outside the camp that the Lord Jesus went forth bearing his cross that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. But the gospel tells us that the place he went to was our place. And how glibly we often say, he took my place. But when we consider the place he actually had to take for us, we get a shock. For it is then that we see, as perhaps in no other way, what our true place is and what our true character is before God. You and I may give one another the impression of being earnest, godly Christians, but before the cross, we have to admit that we are not that sort of person at all. At Calvary, the naked truth is staring down at us all the time from the cross, challenging us to drop the pose and own the truth. Unquote. The body was destroyed outside the camp. After the religious ceremony was completed on the Day of Atonement, after the throat of the goat had been cut and its lifeblood had been poured out, after the blood had been collected and brought into the Holy of Holies, the goat's empty husk of a carcass was taken outside of the Jewish tribal camp and burned in the place of refuse. Similarly, Jesus was taken outside the gate of Jerusalem to be crucified. I want you to recall what I mentioned just a few moments ago about our exclusion as non-Jews and non-priests from the worship of God at the tabernacle. And give me a little bit of poetic license here, if you would. In your mind's eye, go back in time to the tabernacle in the wilderness. As a foreigner or a leper, or a criminal, you are outside the camp. You are not permitted to be involved in tabernacle worship. But the Day of Atonement has arrived, 
and God has moved in your heart to seek him. So you wait. Then the emaciated corpse of the sacrificial goat is brought outside the camp to be destroyed. At a distance, you follow those that carry the carcass out and watch as they throw it on the burn pile. You go to the burn pile and you fall on your knees in grief and thanksgiving because this is the closest you can come to the holy ordinances of God. And God sees your heart and is pleased with your worship in the self-same way. This is how our Savior made himself available to all mankind, you and me. Away from ritual, away from pomp, away from religious rites, Jesus was taken outside the camp to be crucified for you and for me. We bear his reproach outside the camp. What was the reproach Christ suffered? I'll list a few things. He was spit upon. He was beaten with rods. He was mocked. He was crowned with thorns. He was whipped. And finally, he was crucified because he was hated. Another reproach he suffered at the very end was the sign that they placed on his cross reading, the King of the Jews. It was placed there to mock him, to show how superior the Romans were to the Jews. If people mock you with the truth, bear the reproach. As a biblically faithful Christian, you will be mocked for being pro-life, anti-LGBTQ, pro-family, anti-drugs, pro-modesty, anti-pornography, and so on. These ought to be true accusations. These accusations are thrown at us with hatred and mocking. But let us own them as we follow our Savior outside the camp and be thankful he has counted us worthy to bear his reproach with him. In Canada, Christians aren't crucified for our faith. But as far as God has asked us, let us go to Christ bearing his reproach outside the camp. We seek and belong to the permanent city yet to come. The difficult job of bearing Christ's reproach is easier when we remember that the city or society or culture we have, cast, have been cast out from is only temporary. In bearing his reproach, we do face difficulty and suffering. The good news is that for those who bear his reproach, this world is the worst they will ever have it. For those who turn their backs on Jesus, this life 
is the absolute best they will ever have it. I'll repeat that. For the Christian, this world is the worst you will ever have it. For the, un, for the unbeliever, this world is the best you will ever have it. What then is our sacrifice? Mike read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great love chapter of the Bible. And we have talked about how Hebrews 11 is about faith and Hebrews 12 is about hope and Hebrews 13 is about love, which is interesting because Hebrews 13 is about get out there now and live according to the truth that, that God has laid out before you. What is love? Getting out there and living according to the truth that God has laid out for you. What then is our sacrifice? It is important to remember, essentially, what a sacrifice is. Boiled right down, a sacrifice is giving up something good today for something far better tomorrow. Sacrifice is giving up something good today for something far better tomorrow. This, of course, was perfected in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who gave up himself that we might have eternal life. With great sacrifice comes great benefit. But this is not why we sacrifice. We sacrifice as an act of worship toward the only one who is worthy. We sacrifice because we love him who created us, who redeemed us, and who sustains us. In return, God in his grace gives us something far greater, himself. You can see what the writer of the Hebrews was thinking here in this particular passage. The Jewish people would have said, so in Christ, now that I'm a Christian, I've been excluded from all of the religious ceremony that's going on. What do I do now? What do I sacrifice? Where do I go to sacrifice to God? And the writer of the Hebrews says, we have sacrifices. Let me tell you about them. The first thing he says is that we don't just sacrifice sometimes or once a year or every now and again. He says we should always offer sacrifices. We have an altar, the cross, and we have a high priest, Jesus, and we have been given the opportunity to continually offer sacrifices to God. Let's read uh, the Gospel of John chapter 4 and two verses in there, verses 20 and 21. Jesus had an encounter with the Samaritan woman. And she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that it in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. It's not going to be limited to a time. It's not going to be limited to a place. And so we can continually offer sacrifice to God. Yet they are not the bloody sacrifices of the old covenant, but the sacrifice of praise, 
the fruit of our lips, it calls us. These Jewish Christians, and I think quite naturally, would have been asking the question, now what? I can't bring an animal. They had spent their lives doing this, selecting the best they had and sacrificing it to God, spilling its innocent blood. But with the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, all this had come to its perfect end. It had all been fulfilled in Christ. Now what? Now what? So the, writers, the writer of Hebrews says, well, do this. Offer the sacrifice of praise. The writer to the Hebrews mentions several essentials for proper praise. One, praise that pleases God is offered by Jesus Christ on the ground of his righteousness. Number two, praise that pleases God is offered continually so that we are always praising God. Number three, praise that pleases God is a sacrifice. You hear that? Is a sacrifice of praise in that it may be costly. Praise that pleases God is the fruit of our lips or words of praise in thought or out loud, not just merely emotions. I feel this way. The writer to the Hebrews says, it is the fruit of your lips. So you're thinking or you're saying out loud or singing to God some truth or some thankfulness that you have for him. Not just waiting for some flood of emotion. That's not what the Hebrew writer is going for. He's saying the truth in and of itself will bring forth that spirit of worship. A tree of worship ought to be established in our hearts whose fruit is the praise of our lips. Spurgeon said it this way, so then we are to utter the praises of God and it is not sufficient to feel adoring emotions. The other sacrifice that the writer mentions is you are to offer the sacrifice of doing good and sharing. With such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Praise is not the only sacrifice that pleases God. Praise and worship are vital, but the Christian's obligation does not end there. To sit in our homes all day, or to sit in church all day praising God just doesn't cut it, according to verse 16. This worship and this praise must manifest itself by doing good and sharing. Is that not what love is? To the degree that we are able. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not merely an internal good news. It is a good news that goes out into all the world making disciples. With such sacrifices, in conclusion, God is well-pleased. This word for well-pleased is only found in the book of Hebrews and only three times. Hebrews 11, 
5 and 6. I'm not sure if it'll come up or not. Hebrews 11, 5 and 6, this word is used. I'll just read that briefly. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So it's used in those two verses once each and in the verse we read today, well pleased. Of all these, all of these ideas in conclusion are interconnected. Pleasing God, walking with God, trusting God, believing God, worshiping God, praising God. They are so intertwined that to remove one is to remove the meaning from all of the others. I'll list them again. All of the ideas that talk about what is it that is well-pleasing to God. Walking with God. Trusting God. That's faith. Believing God. Worshiping God. Praising God. What a joy it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ.